Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of Women in Power. I'm here with Helen. Would you like to introduce yourself? I'm Helen Hyde. Um, so Helen, we know each other. You are my head teacher at Watford Grammar School for Girls. Um, so if you want to just ask, I just want to ask you about your childhood. So was there anybody that like inspired you growing up to who you are today? Like was there anyone influential in your life? Well, I grew up in South Africa, and I didn't really think a about what was going on around me because I was a real swat. And all I liked to do was learn. But my family are very, they're, they're different because I'm it's the first generation born in South Africa. And I'm ashamed to say, I, well, I had a charmed life, but I was, I knew about apartheid, but it didn't really impinge on my life because white people lived in this area Mm-hmm. And black people came into the area just to work. Mm-hmm. and then, So I only really woke up to the horrors of apartheid when I came to this wonderful country mm-hmm. in 1970. My father was, was German, my mother was from Belgium. But what influenced me more than anything else were two photographs. Um, one with three people, one of which was my dad another man and a woman, and then a big family uh, photo with my dad. And what I then found out was his brother and his whole family. Um, And the woman in the picture influenced me, although she died in the Holocaust, Mm -hmm. only because I knew her name was Helen, and I was Helen. But nobody would tell me about it. Nothing at all. Mm -hmm. um, So that influenced me a lot. Um, My parents never went, were not very well educated. They never went to university or anything. I was the first person in the family to go to university. And I just liked studying. My father worked very hard. So that was a big influence on me, the work ethic. And my mother was the opposite of me. As I'm dark, and my mum was ginger. She was born in Belgium, Mm -hmm. came to South Africa, not speaking a word of English. Um, when she was 11. Her father was born in Poland, her mother was born in Germany, never spoke any English, Um, but they got married in Belgium. They're very complicated, Mm -hmm. but I've spent most of my life, besides doing a lot of other things, tracing the woman who I was named after. So I can tell you about that briefly, shall I tell you? Yeah, 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 you can, yeah. Okay, she and my father and his brother Justin were born in a most beautiful village in Germany, in Bavaria, called Nordlingen. And um, you can trace the family back to the 1700s. Very happy, very involved in the local community, pretty religious, Jewish, but not orthodox or anything, not ultra-orthodox. Then the Nazis start their nonsense. And um, my father fled or went to South Africa in the late 1930s. And so you can understand why he never spoke, Mm. because his parents, he left his family behind. His brother wanted to become a doctor, but with the Nazis and all that, they wouldn't allow it. So he trained to be a carpenter with a view to go and live in what was then Palestine. Um, And Helen, the, the, the woman, wanted to go and live in Palestine, but she wasn't allowed to because she was a girl, mm-hmm. a woman, and so she trained to be a teacher. And that must be in my DNA because of my love of teaching. Um, so to abbreviate the story, 
She then, her name, Helen, got married to Justin and they went to live in Frankfurt. And he had um, a leather goods business and on Kristallnacht, I hope you remember what Kristallnacht is, 1938, um, a huge riot, uh, Jewish businesses, synagogues destroyed, his business was destroyed. So they then fled. And they fled, as Anne Frank's family fled, they fled to Holland, to Amsterdam. I've been to their flat, I've tracked their whole journey, and they lived not far from the Franks, because all the German people liked to live together, as we, we're all very tribal, aren't we? Um, and then the Nazis invade Holland. By this stage, they've got two children. One is Judith, and one is David Peter. Um, and they decide that they have to go into hiding because it's too dangerous. So they actually give Judith away to the just Dutch resistance. Can you imagine how hard that mm. must have been for a parent? Um, and they go into hiding, or they try to go into hiding with their son. Um, Helen, uh, Judith is looked after in a totally different area in Holland by a family and she spends five glorious years with them. It's, I, I'm not giving you all the details because it's not the purpose. Um, but Helen and her husband and the little boy were betrayed. They were captured, put into um, a holding place in, in Amsterdam and eventually shipped out and murdered in an extermination camp called Sobibor in Poland. Um, the rest of the story is irrelevant, but... Um, so I, I grew up with that, but nobody's speaking. And when you, go, when you grow up with a, a secret, you're always wondering what the secret is. So I spent years and years and years tracking it down. I know all the details now, and I have the evidence. But I also grew up with two sisters. I'm the eldest. Um, and we're all very different. One sister, my younger sister, now lives in Bushy. And I've now got two daughters and four grandchildren, three girls and a boy. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, so you said about Helen, she um, she was in education. So I know obviously you, you were at Watford Girls for like over 28 years. So what in what got you into like teaching? Okay, well, as part, part of my youth, I became a youth leader in a Jewish youth movement mm -hmm. and I spent my life at, that was the, the happiest time really. Every single weekend, we do something, and eventually I became a, a leader and had a, a kind of a primary group. Um, that never was my big thing, primary teaching, although I do quite a bit now. Um, and I just loved the fact that I was able to to share learning and not, not filling up little bottles with knowledge, but to share and learn from them. So that was the one thing that made me think that I, I would enjoy it. Uh, but I never actually thought I would teach. I wanted to be an academic. Mm -hmm. um, so I went to university. I didn't do brilliantly at school. I was average. Mm. I was so painfully shy. Um, I put my hand up once in what we, we did matric. We didn't do sixth form. Mm -hmm. um, and I won the debating competition. And I was so angry because it was about... Something I can't remember exactly, but I knew it was something to do with equality. Mm -hmm. um, so I knew I could talk if I could get over my nerves and my shyness. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, 
my, I got married to someone that my parents knew very, very well. Um, and we decided we needed to be a bit more independent and leave South Africa and our families. But we were going to go back. So we came, we travelled. I went, because I did a French degree, and I did French and Biblical studies. But I really loved the Bible, the whole Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be honest, when I was doing my... Um, I, I did a, a BA Honours. When I was doing the Honours, it was on Jesus and the Pharisees. My father did not understand why a nice Jewish girl was studying the New Testament, but it's marvellous. Anyway, my my, uh, master's was in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is also that sort of period when Jesus was around. Anyway, we decided to leave South Africa, but I wanted to improve my French even more, so we went to Paris. And we spent three months in Paris with almost no money, living in the tiniest hotel, doing I was doing a French course, and going to every art gallery I could find. <laughs> it was wonderful. We drank wine that stained your teeth red, and I survived on chocolate mousse. <laughs> it was wonderful. But we ran out of money. We came to this country. My husband was a doctor, <laughs> is a doctor. And I had to get a job. So the first job I tried thinking I'm going back to university. You know, this is, I've got to get into university in England. Anyway, I got a job at the Michelin Tire Company with um, all these um, Cambridge and Oxford students, <laughs> and they spoke very beautifully. And all we had to do was write out envelopes. And I beat them all out much quicker than them, but it was oh, intensely boring. So I thought, right, um, I had gone to teach a training college in South Africa, just because I thought, you know, it's a skill. My father always said, you need to do something. I actually wanted to be a pilot. Okay. But my maths was not very good. Mm-hmm. So I had a training, a teacher training certificate as well as a degree. So I thought, all right, I'll, I'll try. And I went firstly to Holloway Boys for an interview in near Tufnell Park. And these boys were so enormous and so frightening, I walked straight out. (laughs) And then I went for a job at Acken Burley in Tufnell Park. And I spent about 14 years there. Loved it. I taught mainly French Mm -hmm. um, and then became head of French. And then I took over all the working with the primary schools. And then I also taught PE. I had to teach PE. I had to do two subjects. And teaching hockey, coming straight out of hot South Africa, and trying to hold the hockey stick in the freezing cold. Mm. Then the, I, I did my probation and never taught PE again. It was too, too cold. <laughs> um, so I then left. I just, I absolutely loved the teaching. It wasn't an academic school. It was mixed. Naughty, oh, just really naughty kids, but I really, really loved them. Um, and that made me realise that I'm going to do teaching, but I still wanted to do the academic side because I just love learning. I have to learn something new every day. Mm-hmm. So doing a podcast is new. Yes. <laughs> um, I then thought there was a problem with the head where the head was ill and no one was looking after what we called the staff association at the, my first school. 
So I did. And I thought, oh, I can actually lead these people. And then I applied for a deputy headship in Haringey again. I wanted to work with children who weren't very, very privileged. Mm -hmm. And they were just ordinary kids. Yeah. So I got a job at Highgate Wood. Um, also a very tough school, but I loved it. Um, and I, I loved kind of working with staff and making sure the staff felt proud of what they were doing, mm -hmm. no matter how clever, how good the results were, all of that. So I started thinking, well, I think I can make a difference. And I started applying for a headship. And there was a school, James Ortham or something in, somewhere in Watford. Mm -hmm. And I went there and I, the, the school was closing. Then I went to Enfield Grammar, a boys' school, and they, they, there was a picture on the wall and I think they were dressed in Knights Templars. It's going to be a little bit rude. Anyway, and these men had a sword, and the hilt of the sword was just under, sort of in the boob area. Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, I went for the interview. I thought, I can run a boys' school easy. And there was no way I could have done <laughs> it because I couldn't use the sword. And then I applied for Watford Girls, and I was passionate about wanting it because... I'd seen in the schools I worked with that the girls, they were good, they worked hard, but when there were boys around, it had an influence, it's mm. no doubt. And when I got the, girl, the, the headship of the girls' school, it was one of them, the most exciting moments. But I was terrified. I had two deputy heads, brilliant women, who'd been there for years, and they, I was going through this tunnel and they were at every obstacle because some of the parents were quite iffy about me. And one of the first thing I did was, probably not in your time, we had hymn books. Mm -hmm. There were little blue traditional hymn books. Well, I thought, I'm not going to use those. They're too old-fashioned. So I took them away and the parent went mad. Am I a new broom? Well, I was. Um, and so I spent marvellous years at Watford. While it's a very academic school, it was a very academic school, um, I like to work with all the students. And I, the naughty ones I often had in my room, but we never parted angrily, really angrily, because my view about students is that, I think you probably know, each one's a diamond. Mm. And I used to say to Year 7, there's a little diamond in here, and we have to polish that diamond. We'll polish it at school. Your parents will do the best they can to polish it, but you've got to polish it. And every day you've got to polish it. And I don't know if you remember, I had a little diamond. I remember this, yes, you know? I remember. <laughs> and then in the sixth form, um, I showed the big diamond. Um, and in between, I showed them it was covered with manure, which is girls' view about themselves and poor self-esteem. And we worked really hard to kind of boost the girls' self-esteem. And I think we did pretty well. But stop me if I'm talking too much. But the, the thing for me to make a good school, why Watford is so happy, I'll give you an example. I was collecting some donations yesterday and I walked into Asda and there were two staff, Miss Don Gray 
-hmm. you probably remember yes. him, mm -hmm. and Miss Rob. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I felt like they're my family. And they said to me, what was so good about the staff at Watford was that we were a family, mm -hmm. and we were. I never, you know, I did have to get kind of iffy with staff or cross or, but never, never permanently. Um, so I can talk about the headship and, and the way I did that in a moment. Mm. Yeah, my next question is, is going to ask you about your time as head at Wolf for Girls, so you can elaborate a bit more now if you want. Yeah, um, I think firstly with staff, my view about staff is trust everybody. Mm -hmm. That's number one. I will trust them implicitly until they let me down. And I can say maybe 1%, maybe 0.1% mm -hmm. let me down, but never seriously enough that I'd, I'd have to do a disciplinary because we work together, together. And if a member of our staff was really struggling, someone in the staff would nurture them and try and help. I mean, they weren't perfect teachers. I'm not saying that. And some of the, the, the children were made unhappy because of bad teaching. I know that, mm. but I'm not a miracle worker. But I would say generally, the staff were very happy, very supportive, and we worked as a team. And I am so anti-hierarchy. When I go into schools now, and I see the way some schools treat their cleaning staff, or the technical mm. staff, or the non-teaching staff, it makes me really ashamed. Um, I mean, I've been in a school relatively recently where the the, the um, cleaning staff are treated almost like servants. It's awful. Mm. My cleaning staff and my site manager were almost, well, they were more important than me. I couldn't have got into school if they didn't open the school for me. Um, and so if the, the loos were dirty, you probably remember, I'd lock them mm. because I didn't think it was the role of cleaning staff to pick up filth. And that worked, and the cleaners are still, I still see one or two of them as, as friends. The same thing with the office staff, very, very important, and need to be teach, treated with equal respect to teachers. So, I mean, I did have deputy heads in there because I couldn't do any, everything. Mm -hmm. Delegate a lot and trust because the teachers are the experts. There's no way. I could teach anybody maths, science, and a clue. But I can t tell you a good teacher, so I did a lot of watching. With the students, um, it was a very disparate, disparate group. Um, some were religious Muslim girls with head covers, and some were white children never had a religion in their lives, and all were precious to me. They made me cross. I got, can be really cross, but um, you know, I think back on those children and I look at some of the things that the naughty ones wrote me, then I know that maybe I did make a difference in their lives. So I loved that. And when another school was struggling, I took over the headship of that school and helped the new head to come in. And we also ran five, six, seven primary schools. And that one, well, you can come to what I'm doing now later. Yes, because I, I remember when I was at school, like, I was just telling my mum before we were recording that I think when, when I was in year seven, I was a, such, like, a shy child, and I think having the great teachers at our school and having you as a, mm. as a head 
it me leaving and going on to college and university it it really I don't know like it made me who I am today I'm mm. very confident I'm so much different to how I was when I first went to Watford Girls to now so yeah I agree with you I think the teaching was amazing there well I can see that you're confident it's lovely but you you're not arrogant which mm. is one thing you know if you're thinking about women in leadership roles and women going into leadership roles some women make the mistake of of emulating men mm. and really we don't need to emulate men at all because I think men get a lot of things wrong when they're trying to kind of facilitate women for me to do well firstly you have to be a good listener a really good listener and then not you have to then make that what you're hearing from people knowledge mm. you then have to be humble not crawling on the ground but realize that other people know a lot mm -hmm. Um, and with those two things, you can then develop your own confidence, but not arrogance. You can yeah. be assertive, but not arrogant. So yes, no, I, I agree. Um, I remember when I was at What For Girls, you became a dame. Um, I remember, I think you did an assembly on it. Um, but yeah, if we could just like, discuss about that whole time when you became a dame. Well, it was mind-blowing, <clears throat> because I never, it, it was the furthest thing from my mind. Because I still, in my head, I'm a little Jewish South African girl who loves teaching and loves learning. And I still think that now, and loves exercise and reading. <clears throat> but then, suddenly I got a letter in the post. And it had a posh stamp on the back, but I just, you know, I'm very used to people playing jokes on me. <laughs> I mean, I'll just tell you, remind me to come back to this. In my first school, my classroom was on the third floor and across the road was an English teacher as well on the third floor. And he knocked on my door and said, um, Mrs Hyde, you and your class have to go down the stairs and line up outside the head's room on the playground because we're going to do some sort of drill. Well, very innocently, I listened. It was a total joke. I was the only one in the whole school. So I'm used to that. <laughs> So this envelope arrived, I opened it, and it said something like, um, you know, you've, you, we would like to offer, the, Her Royal Majesty, what, you know, would like to offer you the Dane Commander. And I said to my well, this is a total joke. Um, so, and I put it aside, and he looked at it and said, Helen, have a look at this. This is, on, or, this is authentic. But it also said, don't tell anybody. So I couldn't tell my children. Mm. I couldn't tell my mother, who was visiting from South Africa. And the first time I really felt it was maybe real was that I was invited to the then Lord, a female Lord Lieutenant of Hertfordshire. And I walked into her, it was, I think it was her home, and all these people were wearing these medals. Anyway, I never spoke to anybody. I then became the shy woman I was again. <laughs> but when I actually... They then contacted me, and I... You have to accept formally, because when you accept, you no longer become Mrs. You're okay, then yeah. Dame mm -hmm. Helen. Mm -hmm. um, so I did all that, and then in February, I was invited to the palace. Firstly, they, I was dro I drove down. Well, my husband drove down because I got my own parking 
place in Buckingham Palace. Okay. So what we did was this, we drove down. As we got to the big roundabout with Buckingham Palace, mm-hmm. I made him get out, sit next to me, and I wanted to drive in. So I drove into this magnificent place, and all these guards in their red, you know. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they gave me my own parking. Fine. I was allowed my two daughters came with me. And then we walked. There was a red carpet, and my husband and daughter were taken away. And I was led up this room. And they, they first say to this room, they first say, would you like to go to the toilet? I would go to the toilet first, and I go, I want to go to the toilet in Buckingham Palace, of course. And I go to the toilet. They're modern toilets, but there's an old toilet. I've got a cough properly. I decided to go to the non-modern toilet. Beautiful wooden door, and I don't know if you know what a clapper, no, a crapper toilet is. Oh, no, I don't. It sounds awful. <laughs> Well, it's um, it has a wooden toilet seat, but the original person who designed toilets was Mr. Crapper, oh. and I was fascinated because at the bottom of the loo, they've got his label. The only other one I've ever seen is in, in Westminster Abbey. Mm. Anyway, I was then taken to this. It looked like emerald green room. It had silver all the way around, and there was myself and a man. And the man was in full military uniform, I don't know what uniform, loads of medals. And there was me. And I, I thought I was quite smart, you had to wear a little hat and all that. So I wore a fascinator. And then a gentleman came in, also in, in some sort of uniform with gold round braid round his arm. Of course, he first went to the man, a bit annoying, and he showed the man how to kneel because he was going to have the sword mm-hmm. on both shoulders. I really wanted that. They don't do that to women. Mm-hmm. I had to be taught to curtsy. I know how to curtsy. But the interesting thing is, and I think I told you in assembly, you have to walk. The queen, and the queen gave it to mm-hmm. me, which is lovely. So I'll, I'll describe it. Um, they took me around. I, I was walking in these corridors in Buckingham Palace where art was right next to me. It was, And then this gentleman is first. And he, you walk across, you stop, you face the Queen, you stop. And she's on a little platform. Um, and then he went out. <clears throat> he was a KDB, a knight commander, which is the equivalent of, of mine. And then I came in, and um, again I walked forward, curtsy there, and the Queen was standing there with a gentleman next to her, with a red cushion with these huge medals. I thought, normal OBEs are little, little mm. ones. This is really big. Anyway, she came forward. She was wearing a silvery dress with black handbag, and she started talking to me like. She saw me last month. Mm-hmm. She knew everything about me. She asked me about my headship. She asked me about education. And she asked me about the Holocaust. And I think I answered properly, but to be honest, I was, I was really nervous. And then what fascinated me, she shook my hand and she wasn't wearing a glove. And I thought that showed real humility. Mm. So for me, she's, she's a real role model.
And once she shakes your hand, you know the interview's over. You then, oh, oh no, she pins the badges on you, the medals on you. Um, and they're on a, on a, like a ribbon. So she, she pinned it on, one above here, which is um, a blue, a sort of a big cross with a pink ribbon hanging down, about that big. What's that, about three inches. Mm. But under here is a giant silver star. It's, it, it's just, they are totally magnificent. So she pins those on and then you walk to the door and as I hit the door, the tears started coming because I was just oh. so moved. And the gentleman took them off, put them in a box and gave them to me. And then you go around. And my family were watching this. My knees were shaking and I could <laughs> hardly walk afterwards. But it was such a big moment in my life and I've never forgotten it. Mm. And when I go to primary schools, whatever I'm teaching, I always take the medals with because they always want to know. And I let them touch them because you, you would never. I should have brought them for you to see. But I've got a photograph. So that was that. Yeah, I can imagine that being very, like, just amazing. In yeah. Um, so I, you left What For Girls, as you said, like six years ago. So what are you currently, like, doing now? Um, so we can just tell our listeners what you, yeah. Well, I left for a reason. Not because I was retiring, although you could say that. But, you know, head teachers are very good at pontificating mm. and everybody else should do social action and how much is your school raising for charity and so and I wasn't doing anything I was just talking about it so I, one night in November I just couldn't I do believe in God and I believe that a little small voice in my head saying get your hands dirty so in in November of that year I wrote my resignation letter I gave it in the next day without thinking and then I literally felt sick because I really loved the job. Mm. I loved working at Watford. Anyway, I left and um, I did an, decided to do a number of things. I was already a Holocaust trainer and educator and had been taking students to Holocaust countries for many years. I then thought I will uh, set up myself a project and I'll take adults regularly. And I've been doing two or three trips every year to Germany, Poland, Holland, uh, the Czech Republic, etc. Um, I must have done about 50 trips. So I carried on doing that. I then became a trustee of a number of Holocaust education um, charities and I teach for one now. Um, so for example, next week I'm in North London Collegiate. I'm looking forward to that, they're a lovely school. I'm in St Albans Girls on Monday. Um, I became a trustee of a, of a, a multi-academy trust, which involves stags. Mm -hmm. That's not the uh, independent school. Um, I'm, I'm a CEO of a, a, a Jewish Heritage Foundation. And what we do is we look, we've mapped all the destroyed synagogues in Europe, um, and we know those that are most at risk that need help and we work with the local community even if there are no Jewish people there to see what the local community want to do with that building um, we help them do it and then we put up the Jewish story so we've worked and we're actually we are we have a synagogue in in Wales now and one in Brighton as well as Spain Poland etc lots of them 
And we now look at um, ancient destroyed cemeteries because the Nazis destroyed most of the cemeteries. Um, but I also work locally because Watford has been the love of my life. I really love Watford. I love the people. I love the fact that it's multicultural, people of all religions. It's got a mosque, a good warras, mm. and I love it. So I, I wondered how I could put back, and I am now the patron and trustee of a charity called One Vision. Um, and twice a week, sometimes more, I run with a friend of mine a food bank, but it's a food bank with a difference. It's all based on charity. And we have different people every day. We pack a grocery bag and we give them a meal. And the meal is cooked by the Gudwara. Oh, wow. So it, it's a trust that's run by a Seventh-day Adventist, which is a Christian. It's run by, there's a Muslim person, there's the Sikh, there's me being Jewish. There's, so we're all... Mm. And this, as you know, with Watford, is for me the most important thing that we share and we show love to each other. And then I look after my grandchildren. I think that's what I do. That's quite, that's a, that's a lot of, yeah, you're very, very busy. Um, so to round off this episode, so the whole point of my series um, is to obviously educate younger, the younger like generation. Um, so my last question for you would be, um, what would you tell your younger self? Can I put in another question mm -hmm. as well? What would I say to women today first? And I'll come back mm -hmm. to that. Um, be brave. Be courageous. And when you're nervous, the thing that always helped me was to visualise yourself doing something that frightens you. Mm. So every time I went to an interview, you've got to prepare, prepare, prepare. That's another thing I would say. Um, so even if you know the industry or the business or the school, prepare because you then need to reflect, you need to be thinking, but you need to be brave and just do it. Go for it. Don't let other people stand in front of you because it's very easy in this day and age for people to overtake, particularly the aggressive. But those that aren't aggressive need to just stand up, shoulders mm. back and go for it. So I would really say that to young women. What I would say to my uh, my younger self was, well, I've, I've had a wonderful life and I'm going to carry on contributing till my very last breath. But I think I would probably say you didn't need to be that shy. I don't think I would say much because I'm, I'm so grateful for what I've had. Perfect. Thank you so much for being on this episode. If you're hearing this message, you've listened to the entire episode and for that I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart and I hope you enjoyed this new episode and if you did, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.